Welcome to another Tyrius Cast. I'm Jim McGregor at Tyrius Research, and I'm joined today by my esteemed colleague, Steve Leibson, and we're covering a really interesting topic. It's kind of the birth of the microprocessor. It's the first decade of the microcontroller, talking about basically the 70s, you know, when we saw really the innovation really start gelling around semiconductor technology and the birth of microcontrollers. And I have to admit, we were both young there. <laughs> uh, Steve was in high school. I was a little bit younger than then. So he has even more history than I do with some of these parts. But Steve, let's start it off. 1971, where do we go? Yeah, so it's really, we're starting 1969, 1970, and there's a guy named Gary Boone who's working for Texas Instruments. And he's got two major problems. First of all, his family is very upset with him because he's going all over the world talking to customers who want custom calculator chips. Back in the 69, 70 era, calculator chips were the big thing because that's what LSI technology could make. And so calculators were big. There were companies all over the world that wanted calculators. TI was designing a special calculator for each one of them. And Gary Boone had to go travel the world and talk to each one of these companies. So first of all, his family was really upset with him because he's never home. And secondly, after you've done your first 20 or 30 calculator chips, it's really kind of boring to do another iteration. So he sat down with his marketing manager and they came up with a universal part that could be just reprogrammed with software to create the next 20 or 30 calculator chips. And that product was called the TMS-0100, which was a programmable calculator chip. Now, that chip had a 4-bit microprocessor core in it, and it had programmable I.O. So even though they called it a calculator chip, it could be used as a microcontroller and, in fact, was used in some early video games, the ones that had LEDs built into them like the old Mattel football game, for example. Then the next iteration was to actually turn it into a real microprocessor. And Gary Boone once again did that, and that part was called the TMS-1000. So that was the very earliest days. Now those two parts, the TMS-0100 and the TMS-1000, actually came out before the first microprocessor from Intel, the 4004. So TI really kicked this TI off. TI really kicked this off. Then Rockwell, and a lot of people don't remember that Rockwell was a merchant semiconductor vendor, but they were in the early 70s. They had started a microelectronics group in order to service their Department of Defense customers because Rockwell was a major Department of Defense contractor at the time. But they were quickly getting into commercial parts, and they decided that they would take a microprocessor design that they had and turn it into a single chip device, which became the PPS4. And that was used in a lot of different applications, but the fun application was that it was used in the very earliest electronic pinball games that were put out by the major pinball manufacturers. Intel, having already introduced the 4004 and the 8008 and the 8080, decided that microcontrollers looked like a good business and that they wanted to get into it too. So they came up with the 8048, and that was a very interesting device. 
because it was available both in a ROM-based version, where you paid them to do a mask version of it, but it also had an EEPROM version. And the EEPROM version was interesting because you could reprogram it on your bench in your factory, and you could turn a design around overnight instead of having to wait weeks or months for Intel to create a new mask set for you. Meanwhile, Fairchild had gotten into the microprocessor business with a very odd architecture called the F8. And the article that I wrote goes into great detail about the very strange and litigious history of the F8. But it, it seems to have started life as a processor that was designed by Olympus, a typewriter manufacturer in Europe. And Fairchild came out with the F8. They got a second source in Moztech. Moztech looked at the part and said, we could do some stuff to that to make it a lot more useful, make it into a single chip device called the 3870, put the metal layer that you do the mask with on top, and only charge $1,000 for the NRE charge for a new part. So that's what they did, and that's why I ended up picking it for one of my projects at Hewlett Packard, which was a, an analog converter card. Meanwhile, Motorola had this uh, 6800 microprocessor, came very fast on the heels of the Intel 8008. Uh, very nice microprocessor, ran on 5 volts only. And Motorola said, why don't we combine a couple of our chips, put the I.O. and the RAM and the ROM and the processor on one chip, produce the 6801. That wasn't very successful, but the follow-on parts, the 6805, the 6807, 68HC11, 68HC12, and then the, the CMOS versions of 6805 and 6807, became immensely popular, especially with the automotive companies. And uh, Cadillac really was the first one to put one of Motorola's microcontrollers in its trip computer in a Cadillac DeVille. And I think you've got some background with like the 8048 and the, uh, okay, well, let's get to the Z8 first, Jim, and then I'll, we'll talk about your experience. The Z8 was designed by Federico Fugin at Zilog. It was his original idea for Zilog. The Z80 actually came out first because Federico thought he could ship more processor, microprocessors than he could microcontrollers in a shorter amount of time. But the Z8 was his original idea, and it's a really actually a very nice microcontroller. I've got design history both with the 3870 and the Z8. Have we hit your processors yet, Jim? We actually have. I mean, I kind of entered around the Intel Motorola Zilog, and looking back, I actually did a search on it and found out uh, it was the Z80 that I was working with, as well as some of the 6800 products and some of the Intel. But I'll be honest with you, uh, as an engineering student, when we wanted parts, we'd call up these companies saying, you know, we need these parts and we needed the data books. It usually came down to Motorola because they would actually pack up an entire container and ship us all the parts, all the data books, everything we wanted. I actually worked for Intel when I was going to college and I couldn't get a single part or data book out of them for free. <laughs> <laughs> so I have to admit a lot of my early stuff was all with Motorola 6800 and 68,000 microprocessors. And I worked for General Dynamic Space Systems. So a lot of the stuff we did was based on stuff built by Honeywell and stuff like that. And that incorporated some of these, especially the Motorola processors. 
But over the years, I've worked on different projects that involved some of these different things, ranging from the Zilog Z80 to the Intel and the Motorola microcontrollers. And what's what always amazed me is the lifespan on these is unbelievable. They, they almost last forever. Well that, well, that brings us to the Intel 8051, which was the second generation microcontroller from Intel. And that was developed because of certain limitations of the 8048. Primarily, the 8048 had a limited address space. Uh, it started out with 2K bytes of ROM and evolved to 4K bytes of ROM because they added a bit that was connected to a flip-flop that you could set, so it really was bank-switched. And so there was a revamp of the 8051 at the end of the 70s, and it really was designed accidentally. A guy named John Horton was working at Intel, and he went to his boss one day and said, we need to go out to lunch. I forgot my wallet, and I need you to buy me lunch. And the boss said, well, I can't buy you lunch today because I have to go to this meeting where we're talking about our next generation microcontroller, but we usually have food left over, so you can go and sit in the back of the room and, and just listen don't make any noise, and then uh, this is how you can get your lunch for free. Engineer not make any yeah, noise? Right. Well, yeah, no, right. he didn't. But he then discussed the discussion of the uh, 8051 with his boss, and Wharton told his boss, you guys are going about it all wrong. We have a problem with the 8048. You are, every time you design a new version, you reuse some opcodes, and this is making a real problem for our customers because it messes up on code portability from one of version of the 8048 to the other. And his boss said, well, if you're so smart, why don't you go design one? And so John Wharton did over a weekend, brought the design back, and basically his design was used without modification to develop the 8051. So um, you, can, you can chalk that one up to John Wharton. The last article, the ninth article in the series, discusses the General Instrument PIC 1650. General Instrument is another semiconductor vendor that's largely unknown these days. They've been out of business for quite some time, but they were very big in the MOS LSI business back in the 70s and 80s. And you can get a lot of really interesting parts like speech synthesizers and text-to-speech converters. They had a lot of innovation, but they had really bad quality control. So they, they pretty much went out of business by 1988-1989. And just before they went out of business, they hired a guy named Steve Sangi. In fact, he came in to be a high-level manager on the same day that they announced the CEO was leaving. He became the general manager of the company and CEO and renamed the company as Microchip. And the only thing, really, that they salvaged from General Instrument was this very strange microcontroller, the PIC-1650. And PIC might be a very familiar name to a lot of people who use microcontrollers because that is the microcontroller line for microchip. And that has created a huge powerhouse of a microcontroller company. In fact, microchip, after working away at it for 20 years, took over the microcontroller lead from Motorola. And that is no small feat. You know, that's amazing because I know Microchip and I know Steve, but I did not know that history. Yeah, <laughs> so, it's it's an amazing story. How many of these parts are still in production, do you know? Well, sure. I, or any of them? Sure, yeah. You can still buy 8051s off the shelf. They won't be from Intel. Intel long ago decided that there was no margin in those parts, but that was okay because there were 20 or 30 manufacturers around the world that are still making them. And they've created all sorts of variations of the 8051. 
Of course, Microchip continues to pump out successors to the original PIC, but they have different names now. But the original architecture came from the PIC 1650. All the other ones basically are gone. You can probably still get a few parts from the Motorola microcontroller line, although they're now owned by NXP, but they're not being offered for new development. And really, a couple of things happened. Uh, in the early 2000s, ARM decided that they wanted to take over the microcontroller market. I mean, here we are, we're faced with all these different incompatible microcontroller architectures, different ISAs, different register sets, and ARM said, we can fix that. And so starting in the early 2000s, ARM made some tremendous inroads into the microcontroller market so that most of the new microcontrollers being introduced are ARM-based these days. Some of them are not because of legacy issues, but, but mostly they are. And then all of a sudden now we have RISC-V. And RISC-V looked at what ARM did and said, hey, we can do that too. And so what we're seeing now is we're seeing the rise of microcontrollers based on the RISC-V architecture. And uh, if I had to put money down, I would say that RISC-V is going to be a huge force, if not the leading force in microcontrollers in a very few short years. I would agree with that. And uh, just to note that in terms of microcontrollers, even some of the companies we've talked about here, including like Microchip is a huge ARM customer at this point in time. Intel has produced a number of microcontrollers based on ARM for mostly for their internal use. And there's there's microcontroller vendors around the world now, including many, many star, uh, several startups in China, as well as other semiconductor vendors around the world. Um, NXP is probably one of the largest, which is, once you mentioned, a combination of several companies. As a matter of fact, just to give you a feeling, and this is a couple years old, but they ship over a million parts or a million microcontrollers and microprocessors in automotive every single day. So uh, microcontrollers, and just for those that aren't familiar, microcontrollers are in just about everything you have, everything you use. If it's got a battery, if it's got any type of connectivity, an LED, whatever, you can pretty much guarantee, or it's connected to power, you can pretty much guarantee there's a microcontroller in there somewhere. And when the automotive companies in the last year have been talking about massive shortages preventing them from building cars, more often than that, they're talking about microcontrollers that they can't get. It's not the sexiest segment of the semiconductor industry, but when you talk about volume, it is, other than memory, the largest volume segment for semiconductors. Well, microcontrollers continue to represent the least expensive way of designing reprogrammable functionality into any kind of a product. And if you're in China, you can buy microcontrollers these days for one or two pennies. I don't know how they do that, but you can indeed get a six-pin microcontroller that will cost you only a penny or two. It's an amazing genesis for a part that started the revolution. And just to build on that, I used to carry around this card that Motorola slash Freescale, it became Freescale, then it became NXP, gave me years ago when they were Freescale, and it was their smallest microcontroller. And the funny thing about it was it was so small, it basically fit on the head of a pin. But there were actually like four, five, or six microcontrollers on there. And the reason is, is because they couldn't cut the die small enough to actually block out a single microcontroller. 
I I have to find that because that was one of the coolest little demos I ever had. Yeah. As Steve indicated, he's got a whole series on this. There's nine articles he's published on this up in EE Journal. Please look at that. And if you want any more information, there's also a history of a lot of this, an audio history through the Computer History Museum in Mountain View, California. Are those available or accessible online, Steve? They are indeed. These are oral histories of people responsible for designing many of these products. They're individual oral histories. There are hundreds of oral histories at the Computer History Museum. They're all online. You can either listen to the recording or in many cases, you can actually get a printed transcript if you prefer to read it. And I use these extensively for research on this article and for many of the other articles that I write for EE Journal. And just on another note, our other colleague, Kevin Crewell, has been involved for several years with the Computer History Museum. So a lot there. Once again, go to the EE Journal articles, go to the Computer History Museum. And if you need any more information, please reach out to us. That's Steve Liebson, that's Steve at TeriousResearch.com, or myself, Jim McGregor at Jim at TeriousResearch.com. That's T-I-R-I-A-S Research. And with that, it brings us to another wrap-up of a Tyrius cast. Thanks again for joining me, Steve. This has been great. Yeah. Even I'm learning Always stuff. Always have fun with <laughs> I've been these. around the industry for more industry, more years than I want to count. So with that, please keep up with us through our other avenues as well. You can find other podcasts on SoundCloud, Spotify, and iTunes. You can find some of our articles in Forbes, EE Times, EE Journal, ECT News, Microelectronics. That's in Taiwan. And we have a monthly newsletter you can sign up for on our website. That's TeriusResearch.com. Or even keep up with us through social media on Twitter or LinkedIn. Um, we have a main one that's at Tyrius Research. Or you can reach out to us individually. That's at Steve Liebson. That's Steve Liebson, L-E-I-B-S-O-N. At Crewell for Kevin Crewell. At F. Sedeco, F-S-I-D-E-C-O for Francis Sedeco. And at Tech Strategist, T-E-K Strategist for myself, Jim McGregor. Thank you for joining us and have a great day. Mm-hmm.